Hey, what's up? Hello, everybody. Alex Kapitko here, centered from Reality Podcast. God, what day is it? It all blurs together. Thursday. Yeah, Thursday. Um, exciting night tonight. Got my Packers playing the Titans. Hoping for another miracle. We shall see. But, you know, there's always hope. Always got to keep those fingers crossed. So that'll be nice. Something to look forward to tonight. It's It was snowing. Now it's just cold. Gloomy. Kind of the same thing, so I'll spare you the rants about that. But anyways, a lot I want to talk about. I just want to start by kind of talking about some cryptocurrency chaos. I want to talk about hardcore Twitter, the fall of Twitter, Elon Musk's growing delusions, and the likely House investigations that are going to be coming against the Biden administration, especially because the Republicans have officially taken back the House. First, though, um, I think it broke this morning when I got up, at least that's when I saw it, but Nancy Pelosi, House Speaker, or I guess no longer the House Speaker because it's probably going to be Kevin McCarthy now, but the former House Speaker, Nancy Pelosi, the Democrat from California, has announced that she's not going to be seeking the leadership position of any form in the new Congress. This is opening up the door for a younger generation of Democrats to guide the caucus. I also saw that the House Majority Leader... Steny Hoyer, who is also quite older, has also said that they are not seeking leadership as well. So things are changing. And, you know, for a while, I think I've probably talked about this on the podcast at some point, but I think the Democrats for a while have needed to kind of find their farm team, right? Get new leadership in the door. And it seems like they're doing that now because, I mean, I don't like Marjorie Taylor Greene or Lauren Boebert or Matt Gates, but. There are a lot of younger people getting more involved in the Republican Party. Now, they're all nuts, but there are younger people getting involved. Like, you know, Peter Meyer was getting involved in the Republican Party, too, but um, he didn't do too well. He lost because he voted to impeach Trump. So I liked his younger leadership more. But anyways, looks like the Democrats are finally kind of deciding it's it's the opportune moment, moment to bring in some new talent. And of course, you know, I mean, I think a lot of people are celebrating this. Let's be honest. I mean, the Democrats lost the House, so Pelosi would no longer even be the House Speaker anyways. So, I mean, it's good she's stepping down, but it's also, I guess, the right time to do it because she's not going to be leading or speaking anymore. So, anyways, that's interesting news. It looks like the guy they right now think who would be doing it is Hakeem Jeffries. He's a Democrat from New York. He is widely expected to become the next minority leader. That would be interesting. I think he would be the first black one, if I'm not mistaken. So I'm sure people will like to celebrate that. Anyways, um, we'll keep it up to date. But it was interesting to see. So I'm happy to see it. Nancy Pelosi's in her 80s, right? Like, I mean, I guess she's a spring chicken compared to Chuck Grassley in the Senate, the Republican from Iowa. I think he's 91, 92. Uh, Just won another six-year term in the Senate. (laughs) But that's a whole other conversation. But anyways, I want to talk about crypto to start. I don't know if you've all been following the FTX chaos in the crypto world lately, but it's, yeah, it's everywhere. (laughs) Sam Bankman-Fried, sorry, I talked about him a while ago. People call him SBF. He has not had a good couple weeks. The legitimacy of crypto seems to be up in the air right now, and it seems like Bankman-Fried, who was once a big donor, big effective altruist involved in political activity seen as kind of the good guy in the crypto sphere has really fallen from grace. Now, I'm not a crypto expert, so I will not stay on this for too long, but I understand enough of it to at least have some opinions, right? And basically last week, I'm going to call him SBF just for simplicity terms, but 
Last week, SBF pretty much lost everything. And this was a guy worth tens of billions of dollars who is now, at least on paper, is worth, worth nothing. Now, I think there's probably a little more shadiness going on there, but it's one of the most impressive destructions of wealth in history. <laughs> and basically, I think Bloomberg describes it best. It has a quote here that said, Bakeman Freud's collapse has been called one of history's greatest ever destructions of wealth. And what happened here is this happened because the two companies that SBF oversaw were the crypto exchange FDX and the hedge fund Alameda Research. And pretty much overnight last week, they went insolvent and have both filed for bankruptcy. Bankman Freed also has like 100 other companies he's involved in. I think it was closer to 130, 140. And also there's a lot of talks about how SBF's companies were a lot more interconnected than many had first imagined, which I think is never a great idea because it sounds like maybe he was moving money around between the different companies and maybe there was some fraud going on. Um, I, it, it doesn't sound like it was maybe the best business model as well. And so there's also talks, speculation that there was some shadiness happening out of the Bahamas. Because before we go on, I should also note that FTX was operated out of the Bahamas. And from every person I've listened to, they say it's mainly because he wanted the, he wanted the company and the crypto market to basically avoid U.S. rules and regulations involving the fairly unregulated crypto market. But I guess the Bahamas is even less regulated. So never a good sign. I also read today on Coindesk that there were unauthorized transactions after FTX's fall that may have come out of the Bahamas. So... Lots of moving pieces. But anyways, The Atlantic has a good piece about what happened to kind of give a background. I'm going to read a passage from the article because I think it explains very well how the fall started or at least what the catalyst for the fall was. So it says here in quotes, The fall began with a story from the Coindesk reporter Ian Allison suggesting that FBF's companies were far more interconnected than anyone knew. Rather than storing value in dollars and debts, Bankman Freed's empire kept money in an in-house cryptocurrency, which of course only works as long as the cryptocurrency remains steady. Duh. It just so happened that FDX's rival, Binance, led by the richest man in crypto, the Chinese billionaire Shengpeng Zhao, had a couple billion dollars worth of that cryptocurrency on its own balance sheet. Smart of him, maybe less so for SBF. The article continues, after the Coindesk report, Zhao said he planned to dump it all. And basically, the dominoes tumbled from there. It, the article goes on. In the wake of Zhao's ch uh, chest move, FDX found itself having trouble paying out withdrawals to customers. And suddenly, a company once worth $32 billion was $8 billion in the hole. Not a great look, <laughs> to say the least. Now, we could look into SBF for days because I've listened to some podcasts and just kind of seen articles and debates online some people think he got in over his head. Others think he was a fraud. I've seen comparisons to Bernie Madoff already spiling around, which maybe could be correct. I, I don't know enough about him to really comment on that. Either way, there really are questions about where the money he put into FDX from Alameda and all of his other companies have gone and how the dealings went so south so fast. And either way, I think the bigger takeaway, though, was this was a huge blow for crypto because whether he was a good actor or not, it's, it's kind of symbolic in a sense of kind of the issues of crypto. Obviously, his is more of an extreme case, but it does seem fascinating, and I think it's a learning lesson, actually, in a lot of ways. 
cryptocurrency collapses, you know, have become kind of a standard thing over the last year, right? After we kind of saw these big blowups almost two years ago, it seems like everything's kind of been falling. I don't want to say free falling completely, but I think the I think the FTX one though seems to hit a little bit differently. The Atlantic has a different article that notes in quotes here. Even for an industry known for its volatility, the downfall of FBS came as a cascade of cold water. I like that. Bankman-Fried, after all, was supposed to be crypto's good guy, the wonderkind, the pro-regulation prophet who would finally lead crypto into the mainstream, end quotes. Now, I should note that I don't really know if he was pro-regulation. I don't know if I buy into that because at least the other some other takes I've heard and some other articles I've read was... Yeah, the guy was an effective altruist and did believe in trying to help these big world problems. But the guy was putting billions into campaigns that were against um, crypto regulations. He, was, he also put money in campaigns against Elizabeth Warren because she wanted to regulate the crypto world. Also, his company worked out of the Bahamas to avoid federal rules in the United States. So I don't know if I get that he's the good guy pro-regulation profit, as The Atlantic puts there. I really don't think that's potentially the case. I don't know if you guys remember, but he was the guy, I, th- I want to say it was back in the early summer or the late, or the late spring, and he ran in a primary in Oregon, and he was a big prophet of effective altruism, and he was really involved, and at that time, I think people were looking at, the, at him as kind of the future, right? I think part of the problem with him specifically, and maybe the problem with some of these cryptocurrencies in general, is that... SBF basically convinced the public that this company was going to be the adults in the room. He convinced the community that they could trust him in an industry that's just full of grifts and aggressive gambling, and all that seemed to backfire, right? I I think that really, at the end of the day, is what happened. Now it really feels like crypto is on the way out, at least in my opinion. And again, I'm not a huge part of the crypto world. I'm not an expert, but it just seems that way. There's been some crashes, as I mentioned and crypto has slumped into a bear market over the last year, but it did seem to me like portions of the market and consumers were starting to trust the forms of currency to at least some extent, right? And last week's antics seemed to have turned back that clock. And I think it's going to be hard to reverse that. An article I was reading brings up a good point. It mentions here in quotes, imagine your debit card suddenly stopped working because the executives at your bank were out taking or making high-risk trades with your money while you were trying to pay for groceries. That's roughly analogous to what SBF is accused of pulling off. End quotes. And I think part of the ultimate problem I see with these recent updates is that crypto is really built on the idea that consumers do not need to trust putting their money in banks and other centralized financial institutions. Instead, they can take it more close to home, more close to themselves. It's independence and decentralization, right? And unfortunately, that whole dream... (laughs) seems to have been eroded because there's the actions of billionaires and the actions of these billionaires has shown that the currency is way more volatile than expected and people can see their values plummet, right? Overnight. (laughs) Part of having a valuable currency is that there is some promise and acceptance of stability and trust and this week I think was a nail in the coffin to that. Could it bounce back in different forms? Probably. But I think it's going to be a really difficult time to turn the clock back. And yeah, I'm just curious how all this ends for SBF. I'm curious what maybe happened to some of the money that people are questioning right now. So yeah, we're going to have to just keep following this one because I am very curious about it. 
Now, moving on, I've kind of avoided talking much about Twitter and Elon Musk. While all the chaos started and he was officially the twit in chief, other words I would use for him, but, you know, we'll keep it PG rated here. But I was away from the podcast on my little hiatus, if we want to call it that, when all this started really, excuse me, all of this started really going chaotically. And I don't think there's too much for me to say that hasn't already been said. I would just, I would just reiterate that Elon Musk is a good businessman. And I think he's been a good hype man for companies like Tesla and SpaceX. And he does, he does things that are important. When people say nothing's possible, he seems to do the possible. However, it does seem to me that he does not know anything about Twitter or how it should operate. Everything he's done so far seems to almost be antithetical to making the company successful. I talked about this maybe six months ago, but I'll also reiterate that I do not think Musk is this free speech champion that some people think he is. I just don't see it. I've never seen it because almost everything he's done in his career shows me that he's easily offended and silences opposition or criticism. It's kind of like free speech for him, but not for others. That seems to be how he runs these companies. And even today, I read a new article that discussed how eight former employees for uh, SpaceX filed unfair labor practice charges, alleging they were retaliated against for criticizing the CEO, who's Elon Musk. And this is not a one-off allegation or anything. We hear about this all the time. Even when there was, I, I forget all the details, but there was a kid who ran a program basically that tracked where Elon Musk's jet was. And the guy basically told Elon to fuck off. I mean, the guy basically told, Elon told this kid to basically fuck off. Um, because maybe I, I can understand, you don't want people knowing where your jet is all the time. But uh, he, he doesn't seem to like people that call him out or do things against him. So not surprising. But all that aside, Twitter is a mess right now. Um, the few times I've gone on, I used to go on more, but I don't know. It's kind of just chaotic. The few times I've gone on, there's numerous fake accounts. I like I remember it was right when, you know, Musk was really taking over Twitter. I thought Trump was back because I kept getting notifications from the real Donald on there. But of course, it turns out it wasn't really him because there was one letter spelled differently, but it's hard to tell. And now Elon, you know, wants to get rid of blue check marks and make it a subscription service, though he might be going back against that. It's made it so it's going to become a cesspool where there's going to be like five Alex Kapitkos, if I ever got famous enough for that, which probably won't happen. But there's going to be like five Donald Trumps. It's going to be like a Joe Biden saying we're bombing Ukraine or something that's not actually Joe Biden. Like it could get very bad very quickly. Then also you have, you know, racists and anti-Semites and all that probably coming back on. So it's just a dumpster fire. It feels like a jungle where the rules are non-existent, basically. And now I can rant about Twitter for hours, but I'll spare you. Instead, I want to talk about some recent chaos. <laughs> we'll, we'll focus our chaos just on what's been happening this week. So according to the Washington Post... Elon Musk basically issued an ultimatum to Twitter employees Wednesday morning. And basically it was commit to new hardcore Twitter or leave the company with severance pay. And what is happening from my understanding, and again, it's kind of actually hard to understand what's happening there, but from my understanding, Twitter is shifting to an engineer driven operation. One in quotes, according to Elon, that will need to be extremely hardcore going forward. And this was all in that midnight email, which was obtained by the Post. Employees were asked to click an icon and respond by Thursday if they wanted to stay. So I think in the next couple hours, the employees will have to make that decision because it is Thursday today. According to Musk's statement in quotes, hardcore Twitter will mean working long hours at high intensity, 
Only exceptional performance will constitute a passing grade. I don't know what the hell all that means, to be honest. I don't know if a lot of people know what the hell that means. Part of me cannot laugh, but that is the most like Elon Musk-esque type of rhetoric I've ever heard. You know, hardcore Twitter, give me a break, man. But maybe instead of hardcore Twitter, they should just make Twitter not feel like the Star Wars cantina scene, right? The email also came after Musk said he was probably going to table that blue check verification service that sounded like a nightmare to me. I don't know. It's kind of chaotic and fitting, sort of funny. But the more serious side, I guess, if you're involved with Twitter or like Twitter or want it to stay somewhat reasonable, is that this probably could mean a mass resignation is coming. Again, we shall see. There's already been that sort of happening, so it's probably just going to get intensified. We've already seen resignations, fears about the future of Twitter. It looks like there is not a lot of optimism around the internet about the future of Twitter. I've seen just numerous articles from Slate to the New York Times to the Atlantic all over the place that just speculate a world without Twitter. So we're getting to the point where people are like, it doesn't look like it's going in the right direction. It looked like it's more likely to flop at this point than be successful again. Now, I know some people say, well, give Elon time. He'll learn from his mistakes. And maybe, I mean, he has given us in other careers and in other in industries enough hope to know he can do that. So there is a chance he could. But I do think what is the world without Twitter is kind of an interesting question. It might be a little hyperbolic, a little too early to worry, but I, I, guess, I guess Twitter has always been kind of a shit show, especially back in like the 2016 era where it did just feel like mudslinging operations. So maybe people in a sense have higher expectations of Twitter than there should be, but I, I could be wrong. And while I think some of these articles are a bit hyperbolic, I think Charlie Wurzel has a really good piece about it. He wrote the book Galaxy Brain, and he, he writes for The Atlantic. I follow him on Instagram. He always has some cool videos and ideas. And he's truly an expert on all this stuff, so I, I usually trust him when he talks about this stuff. And I, I definitely recommend checking him out. But he has a good piece called What Do We Lose If We Lose Twitter? Although a full collapse is unlikely, a different kind of ending is possible. And Warzel basically discusses how he at first did not buy the worries that some people had about Musk ruining Twitter. However, he does note that his time has gone on. It seems like Musk is just doing a great job of trying to make the platform unworkable. Uh, Warzel writes in the article in quotes here, Musk has drastically and indiscriminately cut engineering staff with crucial institutional knowledge and gutted teams that deal with Twitter's complex legal and privacy policies and their enforcement. He's also frozen uh, code deployment and has pledged to disconnect Twitter's microservices, which are part of the, uh, the website's technical architecture, but which Musk sees as costly bloat. <laughs> Before I go on, while I was reading that the first time, it almost seems like Musk has that same mentality as uh, like he has that same mentality towards Twitter that the reactionaries like Steve Bannon and Peter Thiel have towards the efficacy of the government, right? Throw a wrench into it, break it, make it almost unworkable. It really seems like Musk is making decisions that would just make the platform structurally incompetent until it can't work at all. And then maybe you accomplish what you're trying to do. I don't know. But it just seems exactly like what Peter Thiel wants with some of these candidates he put out. He doesn't want them to be effective at government. He wants to almost just like bring the government down. Anarchy. I don't know. Musk gives me those vibes as well. But anyways, in the article, Warzel brings up a pretty funny point. He notes that these uh, layoffs, structural cuts, whatever, have come at probably the worst possible time because, as we talked about last week, sorry, we got a loud vehicle, the, 
the World Cup is starting on Sunday, and historically, this leads to record traffic on Twitter. <laughs> Opportune, right? And right as Musk is structurally eroding the platform, FIFA is basically just this huge stress test on it. Should be fun to see. I'm kind of here for it at this point. I think, though, what Warzel, like going back to kind of Warzel's piece here, is what he thinks will happen is that Twitter is going to lose its ability to connect people and allow niche ideas to spread. Because that was always the appeal from the beginning, is someone with these cool ideas or whatnot can kind of blow up on Twitter. Obviously, then they end up getting attacked for their ideas and things can get ugly, but that was kind of the idea, is maybe someone you wouldn't have heard from can get famous or get known and share ideas. But Warzel talks about as basically the platform becomes more toxic and more chaotic, there's going to be less of a desire to share useful ideas, and it may just again resort to what he calls far more noise than signal. And it seems like Twitter has been, I guess in a sense, somewhat revolutionary because it's changed how people communicate. It really has, right? The word limit or character limit, whatever it is, is quite interesting because it's changed how people share ideas and how much they can basically get out. So for the good or the bad, it's reformed how people talk and write, right? You can't write a 10-page paper anymore. And I would say it's actually, for me, made me better at articulating ideas in a simple form because I used to kind of be a babbler where I would like to write and write and write. But it really has changed how we communicate ideas to people. But as Warzel talks about, it does seem like that era is kind of over, even as revolutionary as Twitter could have been. And it seems like we're moving more towards short videos, like what you see on Instagram and TikTok and even Facebook. But Warzel seems to think that's the case, though. And I just, I just feel like maybe there's a few options here. First off, maybe if this subscription blue checkmark thing happens... Maybe it's only famous people that still use Twitter once they can be verified for and protected and their verification stays. Because I don't know if it's going to be a productive platform. I think people who enjoy conversations will not want to be there if these same rules exist. And it might just become the Star Wars bar scene, just completely. So I don't think Twitter is over, but it does seem like, I don't know if they're good days, I don't know if that's the right way to say it, but the better days of Twitter are probably behind us. Now, the last thing I want to talk about, we're moving away from crypto and Twitter and all that fun, back to the fun mudslinging of politics, which I, so I guess we do have somewhat of a good transformation there. But anyways, I want to talk about House Republicans and kind of what may be a long, long wave of investigations ahead. As we all know, the Republicans yesterday officially took control of the House. That means Kevin McCarthy is probably going to be Speaker, though I saw there's like 30 people in his in his own party that oppose him so far. So like I said, it's probably going to be chaotic for him and his life is going to be difficult, but he's going to get his face on the placard or get his face up in the hallway. He'll have the picture that says Kevin McCarthy, Speaker of the House, probably. And I think that's all he wants. He likes power. So not the best guy. <laughs> Last week, I talked about how the Republicans taking the House would lead to investigations, probably pointless investigations, and potential impeachments of everyone from Biden to Mayorkas to probably Kamala Harris. Fun stuff, right? And less than 24 hours after the news confirmed that the GOP has taken the House, the Republicans have already shown their colors and shown us what they plan to do, right? Politico has an article that discusses, in quotes, on Fox News, Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy, who is expected to be the next House Speaker, tossed out a range of possible investigations, these involved Biden's withdrawal in Afghanistan to immigrants entering at the border. Minutes later, Representatives Jim Jordan of Ohio and James Comer of Kentucky discussed plans to investigate politiza politization in federal law enforcement and Hunter Biden's business affairs. 
Comer also discussed how they want to make it clear that this is going to be an era of investigation. So isn't that going to be fun? We have that to look forward to, an era of investigations. Now, something I think is important to remember is that while it's good news that the Democrats maintain the Senate and that the crazy Doug Mastriano and Kerry Lake types have lost, this is still going to be a get-nothing-done term for Democrats. And Joe Biden is probably going to be a lame duck. Maybe the craziest stuff won't be able to happen because of the slim majority in the House, but it's not going to be productive either. And the Republicans are likely going to try to stall any policies and just focus on these godforsaken investigations. Now look, like if Hunter Biden was secretly doing work for his dad and was directly receiving government money and had links to the Biden administration, I think the, Imper the American people should know, right? Instead, though, I think it's more likely that we're just going to get pointless character attacks, endless invest investigations. I'm still on the side that Hunter Biden is underqualified for some of the employment he received and that he's a flawed person and that he definitely used his dad's name to get some of these opportunities. But I just haven't seen evidence that Biden himself is connected to any of this. And, you know, if we're going to investigate people who are using their dad's name and being involved in politics over his name, why don't we look at like Jared Kushner and Ivanka, right? Those are the people I would like to look at as well. But my other issue too is that these investigations are not going to be effective and they're not going to help the American people and they will stop Congress from probably passing things to help people, legislation that's actually good for people. For example, McCarthy said they're going to investigate the origins of COVID. Look, I think all of us want to know, and who knows, maybe it did come from a lab, but there are already investigations going on. Some people have talked about it. Obviously, maybe it's not as mainstream as it should be, but people have talked about it. But I don't think they're going to focus on actually finding out. And also, what does that do for the American people? COVID is still a problem. Obviously, we should know if virus did come from a lab, so we don't do it again, but it's not going to help the American people. And instead, probably an investigation into COVID like that would just be partisan attacks on Dr. Fauci and Democrats and finger pointing. It won't be about answers or helping people. It's going to be conspiratorial talking points, finger pointing at Democrats and all that fun. And I'm just sure of it. I'm just sure of it because that's kind of what the GOP's become is just a big culture war. So all these investigations are probably going to be on that as well. Also, they're likely going to investigate the withdrawal from Afghanistan. And look, it was bad. I did a podcast a while ago on how it seems like Biden has blind spots, and it was really problematic. But will they discuss how the Trump administration gave the Taliban legitimacy and helped create the situation for Kabul to fall? How Trump wanted to do the same thing and really had no plans? I just don't think that'll happen either. It'll just be finger-pointing at Biden. We'll learn nothing, and it'll just be kind of painful to watch and see. And like that's how they seem to operate these things. Maybe they should investigate the border, which they've said they will. But again, I don't know if they're actually going to look at answers, because I do think we have issues at the border. But I think instead it's going to be partisan, and they will probably neglect to talk about how this issue's existed on both sides of the presidency. Also, if they were actually doing a bipartisan investigation, and a sensible one, if they're going to investigate Biden's border policies... Maybe they should also investigate why Ron DeSantis sent migrants to Martha's Vineyard and clearly lied to them about where they were going. I would like to know about why state funds were used for that, but of course we won't. But, I mean, either way, I think we can be guaranteed that it's going to be chaos. It does look like Democrats in the White House are preparing for what's to come, which is good, but who knows? Who knows? It seems like Republicans are going to be throwing everything at the wall just to see what sticks, and... 
Apparently the White House, including Joe Biden, have been preparing for months now for these investigations, and they have lawyered up. An article by CNN from today discusses how the White House has identified DHS Secretary Mayorkas as a key target. The article discusses sitting around the large conference table in the Roosevelt Room, White House lawyers probed senior DHS officials about their preparations for the wide-ranging Republican oversight that they had begun to anticipate, including Republicans' plan to impeach Mayorkas. The article, the article also discusses in quotes here, in piecing together GOP, GOP targets and strategy, the team has played close attention to representatives Jim Jordan of Ohio, James Comer of Kentucky, the two Republicans who are most likely to lead the investigation, end quotes. And yeah, both of these guys are crazy. I can just already see it on TV. Jim Jordan is atrocious. I can't believe people still elect him. He is like the definition of a culture warrior that doesn't actually know anything about policy. But people wonder why government doesn't work well for them. It's because we are using tax dollars on partisan investigations like this. And I think the Democrats are also guilty of this in some extent, right? Especially during the Trump era. From day one, they didn't want him to be president. They saw him illegitimate. There's issues there, but... It's definitely an issue that I think the Republicans are going to weaponize. And this might just be the new, new normal. So I'm not, not at all excited about that. So anyways, that'll do us for today. Hope you have a great rest of your Thursday. Stay warm. Looks like we got a big storm moving into the upper Great Lakes area, more like in Buffalo, New York, and all that side. Looks miserably cold. Luckily here, it's just going to be kind of miserably cold. So we can celebrate that, I guess, or something. So anyways, you can find me on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, YouTube, Podbean, Spotify, you know, whatever else I missed. So take care and adios.